Celia Cruz, Archive Fever, and a new Cuban nest in the making, Casa Cuba. We discuss all of it with Maite Morales, our guest this week. Like a sparrow building shelter with branches for its young My mother built a nest with love for her little ones My grandfather told her, doesn't matter what you have The only thing you need for life is each other's helping hands Never the emptiness, my mother always says Spread your wings and fly, you can always come back to rest Never the emptiness, my mother always says Wherever you may go to grow, this will always be your home Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Never the Empty Nest I'm Vanessa I'm Nicole And Yoda Mom is not here today She had an emergency, so we're not going to have her on. We love her and we'll miss her, but it's okay. We do have an amazing guest, Maite Morales, who is actually the program manager at Casa Cuba and has a PhD in history, um, which we're going to talk about a little bit about the emotions of the Cuban Revolution, which I think is really, really interesting. And we're also going to talk a lot about Casa Cuba and family, and all kinds of things. So we're super excited to have you on. Hi, Maite. Hello, so happy to be here. And I can't believe we actually looked into my dissertation. Um, it was two years ago, but it feels like a lifetime with all that's been going on in COVID and, you know, getting back that to normal. That you finished it in 2020 is a huge deal. Oh my yes, God, I defended virtually. Uh, it was oh a nice God. experience, though, because usually you have to stand in front of a committee. Mm-hmm. So I was in my house in La Sala. Yeah. And from the waist up, I had a very nice shirt. But from the waist down, I was in PJs. So <laughs> it was very comfortable. It. Awesome. I wish I could have done that. <laughs> Seriously, that is the upside, huh? That's yeah. for sure. You're in your territory. It feels it feels better, right? How is everybody? Nikki, How how is how are you today? How I'm was fine. your week? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I usually have like some like uh, you do intensity or drama, but I'm I'm uh, chill today. We had to get up really early to get the kids ready for picture day at school. I saw those; those were so cute, and they looked so adorable. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I have to brush out my daughter's hair, and that's the whole thing. And uh, but yeah, everything's fine today. My week has been fine. I'm preparing. I'm working on my vision board. And I'm preparing for an event in Miami. I'll be going to Miami in two weeks for to sing. Yes. So sir. that's what I'm doing. That's what's. I, can I just say one second, Maite? Is that like a picture of Celia behind you? I can show you if you want yes. to. Yes. We're talking about Celia Cruz. Oh my yeah. God. I love it. Stop. I saw Celia. Yeah. Sorry. There's like a big book <laughs> behind Maite. And I was like, what is that awesome book of Celia Cruz? So this is like an iconic picture of her. Um, it was taken by a photogra- photographer named Alexis Rodriguez Duarte. Mm-hmm. And he kind of became a photographer of her career. So we had the privilege mm-hmm. of meeting him and his partner. And he gifted this to us. And I just have it mm-hmm. as... You know, Celia has become a part of the Casa Cuba journey. Mm-hmm. We received her music scores at FIU. It was the big... Uh, donation I think one of the biggest ones we've received wow. and it was the first one that I had uh, hands-on experience 
Okay, uh, so with, hang on, Maite. You're saying that you received at FIU and Casacuba the 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 music scores of the music Celia? scores collection of her music scores that she carried with her from when she was in Cuba. Wow. All the way throughout her career, um, it has like handwritten notes in the margins. Stop. It's so cool. I have goosebumps um, like from head to toe right now. And I was uh, a graduate assistant at the time going into becoming like a full-time member of the Gasakua team. And so she was like the first person. I, you think of collections, you think of people. You don't yeah. just think mm-hmm. of the material. So she was the first person that I, you know, had a close relationship through Gasakua. I mean, I heard her music, but now yeah. I got to welcome her music scores. Met the photographers. This is actually in, I think this is Fairchild, the background. I was going to say, that's either Fairchild or Deering, yeah. like one of those, mm, because yeah, looks that's, like Deering that's too. South, South Florida, it feels yeah. like. And it's just beautiful pictures of her. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Sorry, I, I totally like went off. Uh, no, <laughs> that's amazing. This is why the bookshelf is here. You know? I mean, it's, a, it's a piece of conversation. For the, for the audio audience, what happened was that my sister was um, immediately caught. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> by a picture of Celia Cruz, um, the great Cuban singer, and more than that, just like, I don't know, soul sister, all around. Yes. Mm, just, I don't, we can talk about that in a second, but, um, you know, caught by a picture of her, and she's, she, you know, hands outstretched on a on a lawn with palm trees, and then she's wearing yellow, right? She's wearing yeah, yellow? it's a yellow dress, yeah. and it's like like Oshun. It's a very Cuban dress. Like it a, is a very Cuban dress with the ruffles on the like bottom. Typical, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's beautiful. So my sister, who sings, and was talking about going to a con- <laughs> like coming down to actually be part of a concert of artists who are going to come together to sing for Cuba's freedom. All the proceeds are going to go to to human rights and to uh, organizations that are working for Cuba you know, saw in the middle of that, that was kind of awesome because you were saying that and then you saw her. <gasps> I did. Oh my God, I have goosebumps. It called. Yeah, yeah. She that called was to cool. me. I love that. That was very cool. Anyways, days. How were our days? That was well, my day well, and my you interruption. Have no drama. You have no drama, which is great. <laughs> Not today, yeah. Woo-hoo. We got to hear about Celia. I personally, as of like what, 12 days ago now, meaning now I don't have it anymore, but I finally got COVID. Mm. And I... I thought I had wah, evaded wah, wah. it forever. Oh. I know. I'm free now, as you can hear and feel probably. But Have you I'm, tested positive yet? You mean negative? I mean uh, negative, sorry. Yes, I'm fine now. And yeah, the whole thing. And, you know, I don't have to mask anymore. And it's 10 <sighs> days out of, you know, isolation, the whole thing. But right. I thought I wasn't going to get it because I had evaded it for two and a half years. So, but I think that's what people working. are thinking and people are still uh, getting because it's like, you know, it's yeah. less scary now. So people are kind of comfortable yeah. and then it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. You're how, okay. That's yeah. all that matters. Yeah. How are you today, Maite? How's your day going? Good. It's it, It's been catch up week. So mm-hmm. I'm still catching up because last week we actually took a trip to DC, mm. uh, the team. And we met with uh, some of the folks at the Smithsonian's, which was just like, very cool. Total nerd moment for me. I've I've always gone to the museums. I have a love for museums, and I think this is why I ended up at Casacua. But we got to um, do behind the scenes tour. So we went to the American History Museum. Kind of got to see how they put together their exhibits, um, the schedule, the the wood shop in the back that puts cool. together all the stands. Mm-hmm. Then we got a sneak peek of the new Latino gallery. 
nice. at the museum. And then the next day we had uh, a tour led by the architect. I think wow. he's like chief deputy of architecture and construction at the Smithsonian. But it was of the African American History Museum, <gasps> History and Culture. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it's yeah. just incredible and so inspiring. And you think about all the people that put a little bit into the storytelling. Yeah. That it's just, we were crying. We cried. We went through all the emotions, and then we felt really overwhelmed because, you know, that's to us the gold standard of yeah. what we're trying to do in terms of storytelling and doing it right by our community. So um, we're just decompressing now and yes. re-strategizing and seeing how we're going to tackle all these big things that we want to do inspired yes. by that visit. So with that, will you tell us a little bit about what Casa Cuba is? Yeah. Um, so in the, in the theme of nest, right? Mm-hmm. So we're building our own little nest but for our community yeah. of um, arts, culture, and really being the center for the study of Cuba. So this is at FIU, FIU Casa Cuba. It's part of Florida International University's ecosystem. But it's really a unique project because when you think of a university, you think, you know, academic programs, you think of colleges. This is really a community-focused center that will be there for the students, will have resources from the university, mm-hmm. but it's making it accessible to the community at large not just in Miami, but also to the world. So anybody who wants to know about Cuba, to learn about the story of Cuban-Americans, what we're doing today, where we're headed, uh, it's a place to visit. And so we have, it's not a museum per se, but we do understand there's a need for Mm -hmm. a museum component. And we have a large gallery that will have uh, a permanent exhibit that kind of gives the background story Mm-hmm. on who we are, starting from early on. So this is what we've been doing, you know, in the past couple of weeks, just yeah. studying how to do the storytelling. Where do we start the timeline? Yeah. What are the stories that need to be told? Uh, and then also having this programmatic element that complements what's going on in the exhibits, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, celebrating music. So we have ideas for cultural weeks that focus on provinces, on contributions by different groups, not just in the music sphere, but also at sports. And using the experts that we have, the Cuban Research Institute, mm-hmm. that already come regularly through our doors to really give it that academic uh, grounding and make it accessible. Just make all this information that we all are curious about, but there isn't really a place. I think we've created different places yeah. uh, virtually. For example, I'm a fan of all things Cuban Facebook. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, you've yes, joined totally the crew. Uh-huh. Um, but it's the idea of bringing that sense of community into mm-hmm. a place that has all these resources and it feels like home. Yeah. I love it because obviously casa means home, right? Yeah. Or house. Um, so from the beginning, I loved I loved the, the name of it. I loved everything um, that you guys were trying to do. And so I'm super excited about it. I also think it's amazing that you... FIU is a, is a nest in and of itself that has grown mm-hmm. with the community, you know. Uh, Florida International University has been a school that, you know, I didn't start out that big and it's become a huge part of the city. And I know that people that graduate from there um, stick with their crew, you know, like yeah. they have a family within their little cohorts. So I, I, it's, it is, it's true. It's, I, and I, there's a joke like the few. FIU, right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard I that. I don't know. I think it's changing to the many now. I, I know. Exactly. You run into FIU grads everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Slowly yeah. but surely. 
but you guys have the the institute, the 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 uh, research institute. Oh, it started in 1991, so it's the oh. oldest uh, Cuban research institute in the U.S. Yeah, um, it was wow. established as it started first as part, I believe, as part of the Latin American Cent- uh, and Caribbean Center at FIU, mm-hmm. and then because FIU actually has such a large resource base, not only in collections but also in experts and classes mm-hmm. on Cuba, that you know it was like kind of like why not have a center why not have a place that's dedicated to this and yeah. so they started in 91 and up until this point they haven't stopped yep and the the i mean for me when i have my reporter hat on that's the surveys that measure the pulse of the cuban american mm-hmm. community they do thorough um surveys and research on how the Cuban community and Cuban American and the diaspora feels about many things, right? And so like even whether they're blue or red and like at which point and there's so many things that I have used them for in writing, you know, because it's been such an important and rich resource that it's amazing to see that that sort of like communion and union of the two, which is awesome. And I will say as a mm-hmm. scholar, they also uh, provide funding for research, so if people are interested in doing research in collections, for example, we have the Diaz Ayala Music Collection at FIU, which is yeah. the largest collection of Latin American music, including records and albums. Wow. And so they have a yearly scholarship. So people could come down for like a week and do research at the cool. university, established scholars and also early career scholars. And I think uh, we have PhDs that apply for this as well. Nice. I didn't apply for that one. But I should have. Yeah, I was yeah. already at FIU. It was. It, yeah. would, it would. It would be too selfish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us. Tell us about your PhD because I was reading about it today, and it was about how, you know, you tell me, but about how the the 1959 revolution was such an emotional pull, right? It tugged on people's emotions, mm-hmm. and then that later was like a catch twenty two in terms of like how it you 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 speak okay i'll speak and i'll try to be as clear as possible because you know dissertations are kind of interesting um you write them and then and you sit with them for years and then you're done and you're just like i don't want to see you for a little bit so you kind of have to fall in love with it again yeah um and so i think i'm in that starting to fall in love with it again phase but we're getting reacquainted (laughs) <laughs> Let's see. First off, I didn't think I was going to study Cuba. Hmm. I'll tell you that much. I'll be really honest. I started with like an aversion to anything that had to do with Latin American history, especially Cuba, because in my house, all I heard was Cuban history, yeah. as told and taught by my dad at the dinner table. <laughs> and so I was kind of like over it. I, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. But as things happen, there was like this natural pull. Um, and so I started a PhD, well, I ended a master's mm-hmm. taking classes about everyday life in uh, the Soviet Union. Mm. And I was born in Cuba in 1989. So it was wow. kind of like the year the Berlin Wall fell. Pretty much. But it was, it was like a before and after for a mm-hmm. lot of Cubans, too, in terms of like consumer goods yep. and everyday life and how things shaped up for them. And so I always heard, you know, you kind of were born in the wrong year. And so I had this curiosity about like, what was so great about the Soviets, which honestly, there wasn't that much that was great. But in terms Mm -hmm. of economics and consumption, it it was better than it was after. Mm -hmm. And so I took this class about everyday life and it brought up a lot of memories from my childhood. A lot of themes that showed up in this Soviet Union 
kind of study, I kept saying, oh, wow, that's, that's my childhood in Cuba that I remembered up until I was nine. I came when I was nine here. And so I started to question that. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to do a dissertation about the Soviet Union, like a comparative history, very sexy history, as they say, a comparative yeah. history of the Soviet Union, everyday life and Cuban everyday life during the same time period. Yeah. But as you get into the reality of the archive, you know, and you have to present this to the officials back on the island, I realized that I couldn't do that. But something that did stick with me was this idea of emotions. So one of the prep courses that I took was this thing um, we had this book that talked about archive fever mm-hmm. and it's kind of talking about how the feverish like emotions that a, uh, a historian feels when they're going to the archive that like that rush of going in and you feel the heat and um, you know what if you find the source and all these things that was part of it the theoretical framework as you would say mm-hmm. but what I realized as I was looking at this is how important emotions were to the government Mm-hmm. And so I started looking up to the uh, emotions that led up to the revolution, what happened in the aftermath of the revolution. So we had this really exciting moment because people talk a lot, a lot of the times about that this was Fidel's revolution, which is wrong to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the revolution started off as a movement. The July 26th movement is separate from what the revolution mm-hmm. was, right? That's right. one offshoot. There's also like the university students. And so it was a disenchantment with what was happening in the government pre-1959 that led up to all these things where people wanted change. What that change looked like, people didn't necessarily know, but it's what helped something like the July 26th movement triumph. Mm -hmm. And so after the triumph happens, there's like this great hope and celebration within Cuba for the first, I would say, couple of years and I, I would recommend Lillian Guerra's Visions of Power as something to read if anybody wants to really read about that time but that starts going away mm-hmm. so like let's say 63 there's already shortages mm-hmm. so there's uh, shortages in oil and abastecimientos, which is like subsidies and everyday life starts getting harder mm-hmm. but people are still hopeful right and then you get to like the 69 70 period mm-hmm. and Things are looking bad and the government needs to implement something that's going to bring radical change. And there's the whole idea of a harvest, Mm -hmm. a million ton harvest. And so how do you get people excited again 10 years down the road to do something? So emotions are really critical when we're thinking about a time frame for the revolution. It Mm -hmm. helps us think about the revolution also differently. Mm -hmm. So we think about the revolution succeeding in 59, but if we think about emotions it actually was going to succeed before that because people were so disenchanted with the previous government right and so if we think about a shift now happening this is what i argue if we look at what happened with asafra we see now a government that is dealing with disillusionment again and how do they get people to be happy and support something like uh, a huge harvest that was kind of an impossible task let's be honest so just to say what what for people what the safra was was that castro essentially said we will harvest we will harvest like 10 million tons of sugar Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. within i think like a two-year period max right but it was a a major effort across the whole country yeah and it required a mass labor force so people Mm -hmm. would actually be taken out of their different work sectors to go work in the fields so you Mm -hmm. have time in the fields and you also had time in the office that you had to fulfill yeah 
but how does he do that, right? How, not him, but how does the straight state infrastructure do that? And I studied how culture was critical to that. This idea of like promising fiestas. So carnaval had gone away, by the way. Mm. Car- the carnaval season was typically um, mm. uh, tied to religious holidays. Yeah. But he actually shifted the calendar and made mm-hmm. it so that carnaval would return at what was supposed to be the end date of the safra that we're going to be yeah. our goal. <laughs> and, and so there's this promise of like, he, there's literally speeches of him saying, uh, I'll bring back the Bacardi rum. Uh, <laughs> I'll bring back the, the Nochebuena pig, the beans, all these things. And so there's like, you know, this people are kind of looking forward to that. But it's this idea of also portraying at the same time to the outside world because you had delegations that were actually coming in to help with the safra. Yeah. You had people from other countries that were looking really closely at Cuba. It was mm-hmm. a really interesting moment, and the world thought that they were going to achieve this. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a, portraying Cuba as this happy place, right. as this place where, you know, this idyllic utopia for the socialist project. Mm-hmm. At some point, he even claimed that he skipped socialism and got to communism. That's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> but he promises all these things and then we get to the date and he doesn't fulfill it. You know, like yeah. they didn't make the numbers. And yeah. what do you say to a bunch of people? Well, you make a grand speech at the height of carnival with everybody's super drunk. I yeah. mean, it was a big, like cathartic kind of release mm-hmm. in Havana specifically, but it was a big deal across the island and tells them, well, you know, we had really big dreams. We as a collective, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. the administration that came up with this. Right. It's like the whole people are at fault because we thought we could achieve this. And so yeah. the narrative kind of shifts. But now you're dealing with the aftermath of that, right? There's a failure. Yeah. Everyday problems are getting worse. There's uh, disillusionment, dissatisfaction is mm-hmm. prevalent throughout the um, everyday life. When we're talking about things like garbage pickup, mm-hmm. just getting basic goods at the store. Yeah. And so people actually do voice that. Mm-hmm. And so we see the, the, the effective environment of the revolution effectively start to change yeah. at that time. Yeah. And people start talking about all the flaws. So how do you address that once again? They create a whole institute to study demand. Mm. And if you think about consumption and demand <laughs> under... Socialism yeah, is kind under, of ironic. Yeah, it's a capitalist idea. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But then what becomes important here is not necessarily just to portray the people as happy to the outside and within, but also to create a sense of satisfaction. So emotions become even more important to them. And mm. it's this thing that happens in the background because a lot of the times what we focus on is the politics. Yeah. So I was just talking about what do emotions mean? So what what is an emotional regime? So I encapsulated the Cuban revolution as an emotional regime and the people as emotional communities. And so I started studying them as consumer, the consumer uh, sector is mm-hmm. an emotional community that is now making claims back to the revolution. And how are they adjusting as a regime to mm-hmm. try to impose rules on how you're supposed to feel? Of course, these are not explicit, right? These are things that happen within organizations of the state. So you have the Women's Federation with different programs. You have mm-hmm. the press kind of portraying how people are supposed to feel there's a campaign that's called me i think mi casa alegre y feliz i think that's the name of it uh and it's about gardening and mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how much this idea of happy mm-hmm. and alegre comes up yeah and the revolution especially at the height of this moment where everybody's just experienced major dissolution right and it's the precursor to what we see 
in 79, 80 with Mariel, yeah. which is like this outburst, you know, this dissatisfaction mm -hmm. that leads people to a mass exodus. Yeah. And also for them to release that pressure valve. Yeah. yeah. And create Continuously. this, this yeah. exit. Super interesting. I feel like I took you on a journey right now. I took it was, I, <laughs> I was there with you. I have a question about something that you said earlier about how do you take this to the officials back on the island? By the time you're writing this dissertation, yeah. you're here in the States, right? Do you mm -hmm. mean to present it to people at archives in the island so that you can actually get inside of them? Not only archives. It's mm -hmm. What's really interesting is that every country has its own way of operating yeah. when it comes to records and national archives. So in Cuba, when you go to do research, as somebody from outside of the country, mm -hmm. especially somebody who's located in the U.S., Right. In Florida, in Miami, right. you already become kind of more problematic yeah. uh, in their eyes. So they're more critical about what you're coming to do, right? There's like that, that skepticism of like, are you really doing research or are you trying to find something else? Mm -hmm. And so I had to go through the Institute of History, which is their governing body for the provincial archives. So... The, different uh, archives of history mm -hmm. um, there are other archives for example there's like archives for culture there are archives for like ex uh, the ministry of exterior relations mm -hmm. but you have to have some sort of tie to an organization that then validates who you are and mm -hmm. writes an intro letter mm -hmm. just saying like this is so and so she's coming on behalf of the institute of history to right. do work on x y and z yeah and so when i sat down And this was just like pre-conversations with a lot of the people within the Institute of History when I would say, like, I'm interested in, in studying, like, the Soviets, like, what happened. They're like, don't ask about that. They just <laughs> – but I think that, that that's something also, like, so I was coming in as somebody who was born in Cuba, mm -hmm. so they kind of had a different idea of who I was. I wasn't seen as a foreigner, uh -huh. and so they felt comfortable sometimes being a little bit more frank with me. Uh -huh. I think it's important to understand That's the role, yeah. right? Like identity yep. here plays a big role in like mm -hmm. how you're given access and how you're treated. And they flat out told me without shutting the doors on me, because at that point they could have easily said, oh, you're problematic. We don't want to help you. They said, we still want to help you, but don't say that because if you say that, you're not going to get access to anything. And mm -hmm. there's actually like some special section of the, of the Institute of History that was doing work on the Soviets in the special period. Mm -hmm. But I didn't even try to touch that once they told me not to say anything. Okay. And so here I was sitting trying to figure out, like, oh my God. what am I going to research now? And I have, like, this limited time. I'm here for a month. Uh, yeah. My funding is dependent on me coming back with something and my whole research project. And so I was like, cultura en tiempos de revolución, like culture in times yeah. of revolution. What does that mean? Really broad. But yeah. then what I would have to go is like, they would all tell me, right? The pushback was when I would get to the archives was, what do you mean by that? And mm -hmm. so I had to find specific moments. Mm -hmm. So in relation to um, the carnivals, before I got to the carnivals, I had heard that there was um, a festival in 1971 mm -hmm. and it was the La Canción Popular, popular Music. Mm -hmm. And so it was a big festival because it was international. So they invited guests from outside of Cuba. And we're talking like mm. Musica Popular at the time was like the protest song, which was yeah. a trend at that time. But it was, you know, also at the same time that there's this pushback within the revolution against rock artists and rock music. Yeah. 
So I asked them to look at the, pe the papers for the festival. And then I realized that, well, there's a coincidence here. Not only do we have the festival happen, which is like kind of this international representation of Cuba. And mm -hmm. the artists were vetted, by the way. I found the list where like literally they would say, so-and-so is not allowed because of the long hair. Right. Or so-and-so it's not allowed because they're popular amongst the youth. Mm -hmm. So it was important to vet who was coming in, not yeah. only because they didn't want somebody that was going to represent what they stood against, but also these are the people that would then become ambassadors because they leave Cuba mm -hmm. and they talk about how, how wonderful it was and the people are so happy. Right. And then internally they're doing the carnival at the same time. So it's like yeah. these two efforts that are happening to mm -hmm. represent a happy country. Right. When you say things like they're doing work, as in the government, they're 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 doing work on a particular part of the archive. I'm like, eh, 1984. Like I'm like, eh, eh. <laughs> like I can't. Yeah. Oh no! But it's it's crazy because yeah, the archives are not. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's sad to go into an, a lot of these archives because um, they don't have the resources to maintain the materials. Mm -hmm. So what you come across is like papers that are deteriorating, but at the same time, because they don't have the manpower mm. to just keep records and catalog and go through these, you also come across the things that you're not supposed to see. Interesting things, right? Interesting things. And mm -hmm. so, and sometimes you're just like, ah, here's that aha moment yeah. that you've been waiting for. Right. And... And that's how you get research done, too. It's like the papers that yeah. are there and the papers that are not there. So what's being held back, you also question because you'll find half of a paper and not the other half. Yeah. And I found the budgets. They spent yeah. so much money. And I'm talking about a time of scarcity where they're spending thousands mm -hmm. of dollars on butter and lobster. Right. Yeah. To host international artists. Yeah. And I don't think that's something that you necessarily want to see, but they have it there. So I looked at that. Yeah. And and so getting into back into the archive, so you have to present yourself, you have to think about how you present your research and get through those gatekeepers mm -hmm. who then once you're in the archive are actually wonderful people and will help you out as much as they can. Mm -hmm. But at the same time there's like this background of the politics and the yeah. who what are you really doing here and how are you going to talk about us and the archive and the work that you present back to the US. Yeah. Because they can't control that. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, like where you're from and what yeah. leads you into all of this? Like, you know, where you're from, how you got to the States, what, all of that. Like I said, I was born in 89. I was born in Matanzas, uh -huh. Matanzas. Like, it's, so I say it twice because the capital is also named Matanzas of the yeah. province. And I arrived to Miami in 1999, January mm -hmm. 15th. I'll never forget. And I've been here longer than I ever lived in Cuba, but I can't help but feel, but feel very Cuban. Yeah. And I went to, I went through like the trifecta of Hialeah, like <laughs> Hialeah Elementary, uh, Hialeah Middle, Hialeah High. So I consider myself a Hialeah girl if we're going to talk about Miami identity. Yeah. I'm very proud to be one. And came from a blue collar, working class family. I think like many of us that arrived in Miami, you know, my parents, mm -hmm. uh, my mom has a formal education in economics, but she came here and did factory work. And so did my dad. And one of the things that they always talked about that was really important was education. So they, mm -hmm. they really emphasized that. And they were just like, you just go to school. You don't have to worry about anything else. Just go to school. Mm -hmm. And once I started college, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor like mm -hmm. everybody else. <laughs> and I did the pre-med thing and I hated my life. Um, <laughs> chemistry was the one that did it for me. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, I'm done. I can't do this. 
but I was always taking as the, like the electives literature courses. And mm-hmm. so I had that, you know, come to Jesus moment with my parents where I had to break it to them that I was not going to study medicine. And I think that's like one of those things that stand out, sets out for me, like yeah. going to mom and dad and be like, mommy, papi, you know, uh, <laughs> You thought I was going to do this because in Cuba also like the education system is different. Like once you pick yeah. a career, that's the one thing that you're supposed to do. Yeah. And, you know, trying to explain how things work here and the fact that mm-hmm. you have to do a pre-med track, they didn't get that. <laughs> and so when I told my mom and dad that, uh, surprisingly, the person that I thought was going to be the most disappointed, which was my dad, was the most supportive mm. because he literally said, I don't want you to be unhappy. I want you to be happy in whatever you do. And so I had this mentality of like, okay, well, whatever I end up doing, I'm going to be the best at. I'm going to get all the degrees that you have to get under that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so, familiar. Yeah, right? <laughs> and my mom was heartbroken. Let's just say like it's something that still comes up and she talks about like, you know, I thought you were going to be a doctor. I'm like, well, mom, I am a doctor. But it's like, no, not, not that type of doctor, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I, I ended up then switching from literature, by the way, FIU all the way through as well. Like Mm -hmm. the triple crown of FIU, I did my undergrad in English literature. Then I moved to history for my MA and it was in that history track that I found the interest for Cuban history again. Mm -hmm. And I went into that as my PhD. Never thought here at another moment, never thought I would be working in something like Casacua. I yeah. thought I was going to be like the formal academic that mm. goes into that ivory tower and teaches, lectures, researches, writes right. books, <laughs> uh, all these things. Yeah. Um, and it was nice. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, it's amazing to do a grad program because you're surrounded by so many smart people mm-hmm. who are researching all these different types of things. Like my favorite thing was hanging out in the grad room mm-hmm. because everybody's doing something different and they, they kind of like challenge your ideas mm-hmm. and having these professors who you're in a room with 10 others to just discuss a book that everybody read. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's community that you yeah. don't find yeah. anywhere else. But at the same time, I started realizing that it wasn't necessarily for me. Mm-hmm. because while I love the the research part, you know, in research, you always feel like you're a little bit of an Indiana Jones and you really think you're super cool. Then comes the writing part. And what people don't, often don't talk about is how difficult writing is, Yeah, especially when you're thinking and you're comparing yourself because there's that imposter syndrome that happens in the background Yeah, that you're comparing yourself to scholars and you're like, am I sounding smart enough? Um, mm-hmm. And you see all the, everybody else as a brilliant scholar themselves, but you don't see yourself as that. But I just wasn't happy with it. There was something that, I, that didn't sit well with me. Yeah. Fast forward to doing research. I'm in Matanzas. I had gone to Havana, moved to Matanzas in between the trips. Michael Busamante, who was part of my advisory committee, and I had just taken one of his classes when he started at FIU. He's now at UM. <laughs> we miss him. He sends out an email and he says, Hey guys, look, there's. Um, I heard about Casacua, by the way. This is an effort that was starting in the background, but I was yeah. so busy with my studies that I didn't really pay attention to it. But he says, Oh, look, there's a new executive director, Maria Carla Chiquen, mm-hmm. that she started with FIU Casacua and she needs some help. And at that point, I was also like looking for a new funding opportunity because I was getting to the last bit of research and funding under my, my fellowship. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, let me, let me meet with her. 
And I just like sent her an email and she was really nice and she writes back and I'm imagining I'm going to meet this really old lady. <laughs> She's not at all. <laughs> She's not at all, right? Like, so I'm thinking I'm going to meet somebody like in their 50s or 60s, you know, an executive director of a cultural center at a university. So yeah. she replies, we set up the meeting. I just come back from Havana, have all these crazy ideas and I'm just talking like a million yeah. miles a minute about my research and all these things. Yeah. And like... I'm like, wait, what am I going to say? And she comes down the elevator and it's this really young woman who literally is like, she's a year older than me. Yeah. And she's amazing. If you read her background, the best thing I did was I did not read her profile before That's meeting her. That's the best her. thing you can do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> not no. Because I I think I would have like stumbled uh, over my words. Yeah. And I don't think it felt like an interview. It felt like a conversation about just like who I was, who she was. As Cubans, we didn't talk about anything scholarly, academic, or CV-related. And I was just expressing to her, like, the, all these things that were going through my head, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, you know, I, I'm reading all these magazines, and, like, I, you, can't, you can't blame people for believing in a moment. Mm-hmm. And I think we kind of bonded over that mm-hmm. because we were talking just about you know, the, di- the complexities of the Cuban community mm-hmm. and how united we feel sometimes and how divided we feel sometimes. Yeah. We're just mm-hmm. going over that. She says to me, listen, I don't have a position right now for a graduate student, but I'd love to have you come on the team. Mm-hmm. I'll let you know. I'm like, okay. I go off to Madanzas for another month. I'm doing my <laughs> second leg of the research. And I was doing the little tarjetica, like I get the little card to connect to the internet every day to check my emails. Yeah. And I have an email from her saying, hey, listen, I have the line of funding. Can you call me? And so then I remember like right before I go into an archive the next day, I go into a park and I'm calling her under the statue of Milanes, who was like one of the biggest uh, cultural figures in Matanza's history. And she's like, I have the line of funding. Would you come on and be the graduate assistant at Casa Cuba? Mm-hmm. yes I was like I have the <laughs> blessing of Milanese yes I'll do it <laughs> I get back to FIU like I, two weeks before the semester starts um, start working with Casa Cuba there's like a big event happening right off the bat and I'm just it, it became like this crazy hurricane slash twister that just like changed my whole perception of what I could do with a history degree. Mm-hmm. I had already thought about it before, but it, it was kind of like that idea of like, no, maybe not. I'll just, you know, follow the course and yeah. do the next thing and apply for, for postdocs after dissertation. But I saw this as a really, like a real opportunity to do something that was bigger than me, mm-hmm. to do something that put my skills to good use, but also like fed the soul because it was taking all this formal training that I had in Cuban history, personal experiences growing up in Miami and just being part of the, the community here and seeing what we could give back, yeah. you know, and creating this place that we need because we don't have it. I mean, if you talk yeah. about Cuba, Cuba, Miami, where do you take people that visit you, you know? Mm-hmm. You take to Versailles, but Versailles is great. Don't get me wrong. You have an amazing croqueta and a cafecito. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 you yeah. have that experience, but like <laughs> you can't tell a story yeah. or like a, a complete story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just in, in Una Ventanita. You right, get a part of the story in current mm-hmm. events. 
a story that's alive, right? Because that's yes, the other thing. That's it's the alive. other thing. It's it's yeah. living history. Yeah. And so one of the things that we always talk about is, is this idea of capturing these stories mm -hmm. and creating moments of storytelling. Because the Cuban community at large, it's so defined by the mm -hmm. stories that we tell yeah. our families, uh, the stories that we've you know, passed down. And that's really what informs our understanding of who we are as individuals, but who we are as a community at large and our place in the world. And don't get me wrong, not to say that those stories are not facts. They're just a piece of this bigger narrative that we need to contextualize and give people the power to really question and research because memory is also kind of faulty at times. And there's only, you know, so much that recalling a moment from one perspective can give you. I think we, that's our starting point, but mm -hmm. we also need to feed that curiosity, the follow-up questions that come around years down the road when you think back to the story that your grandmother told you when you were five and that really stuck with you, but you didn't realize how impactful right. it was yeah. until you're reflecting on it, let's say, 10 years ago, yeah. 10 years down. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's the reported memoir, right? It's yeah. like you have to report the memoir. Yeah. So there's a lot that you just said that, you know, I think rings true for all of us, um, at least in the nest here. Definitely that mm -hmm. early on in what you just said right now in the history, that sacrificial generation that happens in migration mm -hmm. that then, you know, I'm not going to be a doctor, but I'm another kind of doctor and I'm yeah. going to go all the way. You know, <laughs> like that is very much. And also <laughs> this idea of the... The academic nest, I remember when when I was starting to get my dissertation that and when I was starting to get my PhD that it was there was one thing that someone said that stuck with me mm -hmm. as a kind of deep responsibility about what it is that's happening there, which was that you are no longer just intaking knowledge, you are now creating knowledge. And that's a massive responsibility. Sometimes it feels like you feel really overwhelmed. Yeah. Which we feel now too, because <laughs> You're doing the same thing. You're, doing you're, the same you were collecting a lot of knowledge. Collecting it, but now... And curating. Curating, yes. But I'm not writing uh, a book. Yeah. Right? We're talking about now something that's a little bit more fun to me, which is taking the pieces from the archive and actually putting yeah. it there and like having people yeah. interact with them. You can't predict how people are going to interact with them. And that's right. the yeah. anxiety-inducing mm. factor, too. Yes, that's the theatrical part of it. Yeah, but it's, it's so, it's fun to see, like, it's it's that aha moment that happens in the classroom, yeah. mm -hmm. but creating that through objects mm -hmm. and creating that through a curated narrative of yeah. an exhibit and then the programming that comes along with it. Yeah. So yeah. doing the, the fun part. Well, this has been amazing talking to you. I'm so grateful that you've been on the show. Yes. Nikki, I don't know if you have any any closing thoughts or, or comments in terms of her questions, but I'm I'm just really grateful that Kasaku was happening Thank and that you. you were on here yes. and that we got to have this conversation. Thank you. Yes, I really was just listening and listening and then I had a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was very quiet today. I'm not a quiet person. We got my <laughs> We got my fill in filling it. But thank you so much for coming on and thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll hope you'll catch us next time on Never the Empty Nest. Bye. All of your 
success She says all the great things ahead I'll be here when it's time to see you again And if you fall, she says If someone breaks your heart I'll mend your wounds in this nest of ours Till you're ready to die 